This is Talk RL Podcast. All reinforcement learning, all the time. Interviews with brilliant folks from across the world of RL. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. Nan Jiang is an assistant professor of computer science at University of Illinois. He was a postdoc at Microsoft Research and did his PhD at University of Michigan under Professor Satinder Singh. Welcome, Professor Nan Jiang. Uh, it's very kind of you to join us today. Uh, thanks for having me here. So how do you describe your area of interest? Yeah, so uh, in general, I work in uh, RL theory, right? So, uh, but, you know, there, there are many types of theory you can do in RL. And one particular, uh, or, or some of the things I particularly focus on is in terms of, you know, uh, how can we get, give uh, um, performance guarantees and uh, design a principled algorithm for the function approximation case? Uh, and uh, what kind of assumptions do we need to achieve those guarantees? And what are the fundamental limits of reinforcement learning under various settings? And uh, among all of these, you know, uh, typically I, I look for um, uh, sample complexity results. That is, can we achieve, uh, learn the, our policy, evaluate our policy uh, using as, as little data as possible? I see from your website that you are co-authoring a monograph titled Reinforcement Learning Theory and Algorithms, and it's currently a working draft. Can you tell us a bit about this book? Yeah, so really, uh, you know, this all started when I, uh, actually before I uh, started in UIUC, uh, I, I knew that I'm well, uh, I would teach a PhD seminar course uh, when I start as an assistant professor. Uh, so I started to prepare course notes for that. And the reason I need to write on my own course notes is because for the kind of uh, RL theory analysis that I want to teach my students, uh, I couldn't really find any material like that uh, in, you know, existing, you know, classical text texts. So I just ended up like writing uh, up a lot of things. And, and then, you know, uh, as I taught the course, I uh, expanded on that. And my collaborators, uh, Alec Agarol and uh, Sean Kagade uh, at Microsoft Research and uh, UW, uh, they, 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 they found these, this set of notes and thought it was, it, it was good. And they used that uh, when they co-taught a uh, similar course in uh, University of Washington and further like expanded on that uh, and included a lot of topics that I didn't really touch on before, like policy gradient and imitation learning. And now here we are. We have a set of course notes, a little bit or like unorganized, but the eventual goal is that we may just, uh, at some point, we'll sit down and um, reorganize everything and uh, uh, perhaps we'll get a, a book at the end of the day. So maybe you partly answered my next question, but how would you <laughs> situate or compare it to books like Sutton and Bartos, um, Reinforcement Learning Introduction, or uh, Chaba Sebesvari's Algorithms for Reinforcement Learning, or others in the genre? Yeah, I mean, those are great textbooks. And I started in RL like reading these textbooks myself. Uh, I think they're very, they, they are very great books uh, as inter introductory uh, material. Um, and, and specifically, like the Sutton and Bartos book, uh, provides a lot of wonderful insights from the more kind of AI perspective, where Chaba's book 
takes more of like a machine learning perspective, right? So if you have a more of like a learning theory background uh, and want to know what RL is about, uh, Chaba's book would be a great choice, right? Uh, but the problem with both books is that you don't really find that much of an like theoretical analysis or, you know, uh, performance guarantees uh, in these books because that's, you know, these are introductory books. They're, they're not supposed to, you know, touch heavily on these uh, kind of materials. And, and you know, that, that goes back to what I was saying, um, you know, a minute ago. Um, if, if I really want a set of materials that teach students uh, how to perform uh, theoretical analysis, especially sample complexity analysis in reinforcement learning, I really just need to, like, write up my own thing. Can you help us understand uh, more about the relationship between theory and practice in RL today? Like, uh, is the current state of RL theory largely limited to simpler problems and simpler function approximations? Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a great question. And, is, you know, that, that's a question that's always going to be there. Right? Um, um, so uh, I think lar- uh, to, to a good extent, yes. You know, we have a very mature theory for RL. Um, in the tabular setting, right? Uh, you know, I think this audience, this audience is familiar with this concept, but when we say tabular, we mean we have a finite small state and uh, action space, uh, and you can afford a sample and uh, computational complexities that scale polynomially with the number of states and actions, right? So there, the, uh, our understanding is very, very sharp. Uh, we, still make progress, uh, we still make progress in that setting, uh, but, but, you know, the, 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 the gap is really close. Uh, however, as we all know, uh, in the real world, uh, in more challenging practical problems, uh, the, 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 all of them, uh, most of them are not in the tabular setting, right? Um, so uh, I think previously the amount of sample complexity results, sorry, the amount of uh, theoretical results for the general function approximation setting uh, is quite scarce. Um, but in recent years, we're seeing a, a uh, growing number of papers and um, quite fast progress uh, uh, in, in some uh, sub-areas. Uh, for example, uh, when we uh, think of linear function approximation uh, in some special uh, structured environments, um, we, have, uh, we have a lot of uh, theoretical understanding now compared to, say, five years ago. Uh, the other sort of extreme is when you just say, I have a function approximator that has limited statistical capacity, and otherwise I don't want to assume anything on that, uh, what we can do with that in RL. Um, so that, I mean, I myself has, have worked on uh, papers of that flavor like you know, for a while, so we, we also have some good understanding for that regime. But... You know, for many practitioners, the really interesting setting is probably like when you use function approximators uh, that are not unstructured, but something like neural nets, right? And we know neural nets have many amazing and sometimes confusing uh, behaviors or properties, even in supervised learning, right? You, you probably heard of all these like over-parameterization. How can we learn neural net has, that has more parameters than the amount of data. Uh, so uh, if you want to study RL with neural net function approximators, 
you will need to bring all those kind of understandings from supervised learning and combine them organically with the unique challenges of RL. And I think this is really like very, very understudied area. And uh, we're just about to start, you know, as a community working on that. And actually to that point, uh, I'm co-organizing co a workshop. Uh, I think I, I, it's almost approved, so I, I won't say too much about it, but it will happen in summer 2021 where the focus is exclusively on deep RL theory. So I'm really looking forward to, you know, um, the, the, the future progress on this topic from the community. So would you say that the gap between theory and practice is getting wider or is starting to narrow? Yeah, so that's another interesting question. So uh, in terms of, uh, you know, um, so, so one way that I think about theory and practice, especially in the, uh, in the um, context of RL, is that uh, it's kind of theory gives you the baseline where uh, the empirical work gives you the uh, skyline. Right. So in when doing empirical work, you always evaluate it on a, a set of uh, environments like the Atari games or Mojoko or whatever. Uh, you'll never be able to test your algorithm like on like all the benchmarks that you would like to. Um, on the other hand, uh, in theory, you get oftentimes you get worst time, uh, worst case guarantees that holds for like all environments that can be casted, say, as MDPs. Uh, but that's a very large set of environments, and many of them are not, uh, many of the problem instances in this family are not uh, problems that you, you would really care about. So, you know, theory is always pessimistic, and empirical is always sort of optimistic. And, um, you know, bridging their gap is, uh, uh, so, so uh, I mean, in, in a sense, I, I think they, they're, they're sort of like uh, working on different things, where empirical, sh uh, empirical work shows you uh, promises or where or skylines where like what we could possibly do, where theory usually catch up from uh, behind and trying to tell you, oh, like for this kind of problem, we surely know that we can do something here, right? So that's the relationship between theory and practice that I think of. Um, now, in terms of whether their gap is expanding or, you know, closing, uh, I think it really depends on the topic, right? So, um, I think, for example, in the, in the function approximation, uh, in terms of understanding the role of function approximation in RL, I think we're, we're, we're I, in general, my feeling is that we're getting closer. Um, for example, if you see uh, some recent empirical papers that try to diagnose uh, what's really happening when you run deep RL algorithms, um, they, from time to time, they will refer to theoretical papers uh, for, you know, the theoretical underpinnings for some of the beha empirical behaviors that they see those algorithms are doing. So in planning this episode, uh, you mentioned three major areas of interest. Uh, they were model-based versus model-free RL, uh, simulation versus real, and evaluation of RL algorithms and overfitting. So I was hoping to start with the first one, um, model-based versus model-free RL. Can you share with us a bit of perspective, um, your perspective on this dichotomy? So, you know, uh, I think model-free versus model-based is probably one of the most overloaded and confused ideas or concepts uh, in all of RL. Uh, really, like when different people say 
uh, model-based versus model-free, they sometimes mean very different things. And I think that's part of uh, where the confusion comes from. So for example, in the tabular case, there's this very classical notion that model-based is more sample efficient than model-free RL. Uh, but when you actually say that, uh, what you mean, for example, is that, you know, if you give me a stream of data, like uh, SARL, S prime uh, tuples, uh, you can use them to build a uh, empirical model of the world and then compute the optimal policy from it. Or conversely, you can uh, just pass the stream data to something like Q-learning and let it tell you what the optimal policy is. And if you compare these two algorithms, of course, model base will be uh, much more sample efficient. But if you really look into this uh, example, you realize that maybe the difference is not really model based versus model free. It's say one pass versus multi-pass algorithms uh, because your acute learning algorithm is only allowed to read and use every data point like once, right? Uh, so there, there's this uh, very interesting result. Uh, I think it's almost a folklore that uh, if you uh, turn the stream of data into a replay buffer and allow Q-learning to make multiple pass, actually infinite many passes over this data set, it eventually just converges to the same solution as the model-based solution, right? So in this case, um, if you remove this distinction between um, one-pass versus multi-pass, uh, I would say that in a tabular setting, maybe there's no distinction between model-based and model-free RL. Um, uh, so when I say model-based versus model-free, I'm more of thinking, I'm thinking more of a function approximation setting and some of the fundamental representation difference between these family of RL algorithms. Right? And my view has been heavily inspired by this classical paper towards the unified theory of state abstractions for MDPs by Li Hongli and others in 20, uh, 2006. Um, and the overall general message of the idea is that uh, if you look at a different family of our algorithms, like model-based, value function-based, and policy-based algorithms, there, there's, a, there's a very natural hierarchy and trade-off here, right? So if you run a model-based algorithms, uh, you're implicitly assuming that your representation is rich enough to capture the dynamics of the world. And if you can capture the dynamics of the world, you can use that representation to also express, say, the Q function of the world, or even the near-optimal policy of this environment, right? Uh, so your representation uh, must be powerful enough to allow you to express all these objects. So that's a, lot, that's a big assumption. It's a lot of burden in terms of designing your, say, feature representation. Uh, on the other hand, with this strong assumption, it comes with great guarantees that almost all our algorithms, if you hook up with such kind of nice representation, they'll work just very uh, like all the guarantees will just pass through and you, you, you get all the nice guarantees. Uh, on the other hand, if you move down this hierarchy towards the you know, policy-based algorithm side, um, you now have very light representation burden, right? All you need is to be able to, say, uh, express a near-optimal policy. You don't need to worry about reward function, transition dynamics, all of that. So you may end up with a very simple uh, representation. But the bad news is that here, uh, the kind of algorithms you can work with uh, in like using these kind of representation uh, will be relatively limited. Maybe you can do policy search, uh, you know, maybe you can do um, uh, 
uh, policy gradient type of algorithms. But if you try to run something like a model-based algorithm on these kind of like simplified representation, things can completely break down, right? So, so that's the kind of trade-off um, that I usually think of in terms of model-based versus model-free RL. One thing that comes to mind for me uh, with model-based RL is that we we might have a chance to learn something different than the 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 reward function that we're given at first. Maybe maybe we can learn other other types of behaviors, which doesn't seem to be as feasible with uh, with with value or policy-based RL. So it seems like we have on one extreme with model-based RL. Maybe we can learn maybe we can learn any policy in the best case and in 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 value or policy based rl we're really limited to just working with that one reward function is there is it do you see is there a continuum there is there anything in the middle between oh, these definitely. two where we yeah. can learn something that's something related to the original task but a bit different yeah i think that's a great point right so you're saying that if i can model the dynamics of the world i can just plug in any reward function i like and get the near optimal policy for that reward function just by planning Right. Uh, so that's a, actually a great point. So in fact, uh, there just out of that, there is a very natural middle ground between, say, model-free RL and model-based RL. Right. So what you can possibly do is to specify the space of reward function that you might be interested in working with, and then try to just model enough, but not to model the entire uh, dynamics of the entire world. So that you can, you will be able to, you know, learn the near optimal policy for all the reward function in your uh, in, in that family. And actually, this um, I, I think this is some, somewhat like related to the notion of you know reward free RL or reward free exploration, so things like that. Um, there there are a couple of like a quite quite a few like recent papers on this topic. So so it's kind of like a growing sub direction. You mentioned a paper that you co-authored with Wen Sun, uh, model-based RL in contextual decision processes, pack bounds, and exponential improvements over model-free approaches. That was from 2018. Can you help us understand what what, what is this paper saying? Yeah. So, um, so you know, in this paper, we considered the the problem of uh, how do you do systematic exploration. Uh, in large uh, RL problems. So really just think of it as, as like, you know, uh, a big MDP where you must use some form of uh, function plasmation. Uh, previously in 2017, uh, uh, with some of the same co-authors, we had a paper uh, that does uh, the value-based version of uh, basically roughly the same idea where all you have is a set of a, a, a space of uh, candidate value functions and you want to do good exploration with that. And in this paper, what we do is to assume that we actually have a class of candidate models of the environment. And as I mentioned before, when you have stronger representation power to represent the dynamics of the world, you naturally expect to be able to, you know, um, uh, do more with it. Uh, and, and that's precisely what we show, that in some special cases, uh, that there are some um, cases where um, our model-based algorithm can achieve polynomial sample complexity, whereas any kind of value-based algorithms where the notion of value-based or model-free is defined in a particular manner uh, just has to suffer exponential 
uh, sample complexity. And that's the part of exponential improvements uh, that is suggested in the title. So this paper introduces uh, a witness rank, something called witness rank, and contrasts it to Bellman rank. Um, can you help us understand what, what it is that these ranks measure uh, and what, what is witness rank doing? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, when, when you talk about rank, uh, I think many people will naturally think of uh, uh, matrix rank. Uh, so it's actually pretty closely related uh, in this case, right? So one canonical example uh, where both witness rank and Bellman rank are low is when you write on your uh, the, the transition dynamics of your MDP as a, as a by S uh, transition matrix, if this matrix has a low rank, then your environment naturally will have uh, low, both low Bellman rank and low witness rank. And the reason we care about these ranks is because uh, when you really think of the fundamental nature of systematic exploration in RL, right? So what is the core difficulty here? why exploration is so hard in RL and you don't have this challenge in supervised learning? Well, the reason is because in supervised learning, at least in the most standard model, you, you, uh, you have data from the training distribution and you test your uh, classifier uh, using test data drawn from the same distribution. So you don't have distribution shift, right? So the biggest issue in RL is that there is sometimes severe distribution shift. Right? So when you uh, execute different policies, you can see very different distributions of data. And in fact, you can show that if you don't regulate this, if you allow an environment where the exponentially many different candidate policies can just generate exponentially uh, many distributions that are drastically different from each one each other, then there is no hope to actually learn anything using uh, polynomial sample complexity. So in this context, uh, to, uh, uh, the, 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 what you really need to assume uh, in order to uh, make any polynomial sample complexity uh, claim at all is to say that all those distributions should share something similar, right? Either they have some good overlaps or they have some shared common structures that, for example, all of them can be embedded uh, in a lower dimensional space. Uh, that's where this notion of rank uh, come from. Uh, th this, uh, both the notion of Bellman rank and witness rank uh, somehow characterize uh, how low of a dimension, uh, uh, what, what kind of low dimensional space can you embed all those distributions that you can possibly generate in this environment. Uh, and uh, the difference between the two notions of ranks uh, is that, as I mentioned, Bellman rank which is related to my previous paper, uh, is uh, closely tied to value-based RL, whereas witness rank is specifically designed for model-based RL. And because of dif this difference, there are some environments where witness rank can handle, but Bellman rank cannot. Uh, a canonical example of that uh, is what we call a factored MDP, or sometimes known as MDP described by a dynamic-based network, where you know you just have your state is represented by a, a number of state variables, and as the state evolves, the value of each variable for the next time step only depends on the uh, the value of a small number of nodes uh, from the previous episode 
uh, sorry, from the previous time step. And it turns out that in this kind of model, you can actually show that the witness rank is small, but in some special cases, no value-based algorithms can 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 solve the uh, can explore these problems uh, efficiently. So, are these types of ranks applicable in real world or common scenarios? Like, can we talk about rank of Atari or Mujoko or things like that, or is it limited to uh, cases where we have a linear transition matrix? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So, I think the real situation is somewhere in between, right? So, we do have several. Um, uh, some of the actual uh, benchmarks that we use in DeepRL today uh, that can be seen as having low Bellman rank or witness rank. Uh, one canonical example is uh, where, uh, what, you, what we call the visual grid world, right? Uh, I'm sure you, you probably have seen these environments before where you, know, you, you, have, you actually have a grid world environment but you actually render it in a 3D, say, game engine like Minecraft. And instead of telling the agent which grid it is in, you give it the first-person view of the whole environment. And assuming that your, the, the raw pixel image that you see is approximately Markovian, then this would be an environment that literally has low Bellman rank or, or low witness rank where the rank is bounded by the number of grids, okay? And as you mentioned, Mojuko, uh, that gives you another example. Uh, if you actually have a, say, linear control problem, uh, like, say, LQR or something like that, that also will yield a low Bellman rank and low witness rank. However, uh, I would say that for Atari games, like especially some of the uh, more complicated games, it's very hard to characterize them uh, using these uh, very nice clean um, structures uh, that are proposed in theory. Uh, I think it's still a big open problem as of today that uh, what kind of structures, very general structure assumptions, can we use to capture games like Atari games that we can develop some uh, nice guarantees um, for environments of those structures. Uh, I think that's still a big and interesting open problem. I attended your RL theory uh, seminar earlier last week, um, entitled "Information Theoretic Considerations in Batch Reinforcement Learning." Um, do you, can you tell us just briefly about what what that your talk was about? Yeah, so uh, there uh, is, the, the 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 topic there is related to the notion of uh, model based versus model free, right? So uh, the, the the question I'm thinking about is literally. You know, in Bash RL, where you just have a set of data points and you want to compute near optimal policy, and you want to use a value-based RL algorithm and say trying to approximate the Q star function, uh, what's the fundamental limitations there, right? So, uh, um, in particular, you know, in supervised learning, the strongest representation assumption we usually make is called realizability, that your function approximator can actually just capture the target function you're aiming to learn. And here, this is Q star. But it turns out that many of us believe that in the RL case, especially in the bash RL case, that's not going to be sufficient. We often need some expressivity assumptions that are much, more, much stronger than that. But at the same time, we don't really know if we just can't get away with realizability alone. Um, so it's about some discussions around uh, this idea of where is the true limit 
of uh, uh, batch RL in terms of uh, representation. In the seminar, you commented at one point, uh, and I'm paraphrasing if that's okay. Uh, you said roughly distributional RL is somewhere between model-free RL and model-based RL. Is that right? Yeah, kind of. You can say it's, uh, you know, again, like the, depending on what you mean, uh, for uh, there's a specific sense where that is correct. Um, if you think about this, right? So if I'm able to model the true dynamics of the world, then using the same representation, again, using the uh, similar um, reasoning that I used earlier, that you will be able to express um, to express uh, the object of interest in distributional RL, right? I, I don't remember what it is called, but basically what you try to do is that for any given state action pair, you want to be able to predict the distribution of returns you would obtain uh, from the state action pair uh, under certain policy. Now, if you can if you can represent the entire dynamics, you can certainly represent that. Now, if you can represent that, it also means that you will be able to represent the usual expected value function because all it takes is to you know, uh, use an a, uh, expectation operator. Uh, so in that sense, you know, distribution RL models slightly more than value-based RL, but also a little bit less than model-based RL. So in that particular sense, I would I was say yes. Distribution RL is in the middle between model-based and value-based. And back to the topic uh, of that seminar, if it is true that in the batch setting, value-based RL faces some fundamental representation hardness, then maybe or maybe not, uh, distribution RL can be a way to lift it uh, without going all the way to model-based RL. Do you see uh, other approaches between model-free and model-based RL, and is that a rich area? Yeah, uh, I think there there are definitely uh, some ideas that are uh, that float around, and some especially some ideas that you can find in the empirical work of deep RL that nicely fit in between value-based and model-based. Right? Uh, one example is value-based RL with auxiliary tasks. Right? So let's say you do something like DQN. Uh, but instead of just like training it with the, you know, the, the TD types of uh, uh, loss, you also ask your network to uh, predict like some other things that's happening in the environment and use that to help you learn, uh, uh, learn a better representation. So that will be a very good example of some, something in between model-free or I would say value-based and model-based RL. Um, another thing to think about is, you know, uh, some of the hardness that I've been uh, developing or deriving in my papers assumes some kind of like a minimal uh, representation power for value-based RL, right? So I have a function class that can express Q star, but nothing else. I can't express Q pi. I can't express, you know, other functions of interest in this environment. Uh, so if, if the hardness is associated with that, maybe one way to circumvent it is to, you know, introduce the notion of over-parameterization, right? Try to have a network or have a representation that can predict more than just, say, the function that you are eventually interested in learning, but something else, right? So this is also related to, you know, auxiliary tasks. Um, another, another interesting idea that I've been fascinated for years uh, but I have not seen a very good development 
is this idea of like learning incomplete models for reinforcement learning, right? Um, so one big issue with model-based RL, especially if you do it in the raw state space, is that you're just predicting like so many things, right? So there are lots of unimportant details in this real world that you probably don't even ever need to care about. But if you just run a bare-bone model-based RL algorithm, you're trying to model all of it, right? Can you just do less than that, right? Just try to pick bits of the world and predict um, the uh, dynamics on those uh, fragments and somehow use this incomplete models for prediction and planning. Um, you know, some of, the, uh, some of these ideas have seen some nice early investigation and exploration in the PhD thesis of Eric Talvati, who happens to be my academic brother. But uh, I really look forward to seeing some, uh, for example, some of the modernization of those ideas in the uh, deep RL scenario. Maybe that could be considered a way to combine uh, causal reasoning with RL as well, because if you if you uh, choose which part of the model you want to you want to include, you can use your domain knowledge about causality to only model those parts that are relevant to your problem at hand and 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 discard the rest. Yeah, I think that's uh, you know th there will be a lot of uh, ideas that can come into um, th this notion, this framework of uh, incomplete models including like causality, as you said, and also, you know, some of the state abstractions uh, concepts like bisimulation and homomorphism are, are also uh, rigorous mathematical frameworks that define what can and what cannot be uh, discarded as unimportant details. So I think it, it would need uh, some of the uh, some combination of all these ideas to, um, to, to come to a, you know, a relatively a uh, complete solution to, to this problem. So let's move on to the second topic, um, sim versus real. You refer to simulation-based RL as solving large planning problems with learning methods and RL from data as solving learning problems. Can you help us understand uh, the distinction here? Uh, yeah, so, um, you know, I, I think this is, another, uh, this is another common confusion in the area of RL uh, in the sense that when RL people write a paper, uh, you don't know what problem he or she is really interested in solving, right? Um, so some people are really just interested in solving planning problems, right? So I have a large black box simulator, and I just want to compute a near-opt policy for that. And I just happen to be using sampling-based methods, which look sometimes very similar or identical to learning methods. Uh, whereas other people try to um, solve RL problems that are um, that are really just defined by data, right? So let's say you want to do um, uh, automated uh, dialogue system, online customer service, uh, use RL to improve decisions in healthcare scenarios. So in these kind of scenarios, you just don't have a simulator and you deal with data. Um, so so I think that there's a there's a very huge difference there. Right. So, for example, there are some algorithms uh, or some uh, sub areas of RL that are dedicated to the simulator setting. Um, one example that I would think of is uh, Monte Carlo Tree Search. Right. Uh, so, if you see the early days of MCTS, uh, if you look at their papers, they will specifically say sample-based planning 
intern instead of learning, right? Al although this the MCT has uh, stems from the uh, RL community, it's really a planning algorithm. Uh, on the other hand, you have some problems like of policy evaluation, right? How do you use historical data to estimate the performance of a policy? And this really only makes sense when you don't have a simulator, because if you have a simulator and you want to learn the performance of a policy, the easiest way is just to run that policy, which we do all the days in DeepRL today, right? So uh, I think it's, it's, it's pretty important to make a distinction between these two notions. So when it comes to learning from real-world data, um, I've been thinking more about the type of noise that we see in real-world data. It seems like the type of stochasticity in the real world is is more complex than what you can easily model in a sim um, by adding any any uh, any simple type of noise. And so that makes it hard to model, and that makes uh, building world models and off policy evaluation more challenging. And then it's and then it's expensive to de deploy these policies in the real world to evaluate how they actually do in a production setting. And so it seems like these things combine to make it really hard to iterate uh, on RL with real world data. And so, like on one hand, we have this very advanced simulation based RL, like. Um, like you were saying with Monte Carlo tree search. And so we have, now we have mu zero and, and Dota and agent 57 and, and that stuff's all really far along. But on the other side with real life RL, it seems like we may be working more on the very basics. Um, is, is that how you see it uh, right now? Yeah, I think I agree with a lot of the points you make here. Uh, although I would say, um, you know, for some of the simulation uh, based RL, uh, they actually have a serious goal, right? And, and, and their goal is for real. For example, um, when, you, when, you, um, when you try to uh, build an agent that can play Go and Dota, uh, they have their real-world um, um, benefits or uh, values, right? So actually, in these cases, solving the uh, planning problem defined by the simulator can be your goal. And there are, ver there are various grand challenges there. And we've seen like very impressive uh, advances. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, we have AlphaGo, AlphaZero, and this uh, amazing, you know, Dota playing agent. Uh, on the other hand, uh, really depends for, for some people, um, solving the simulation, solving the simulator problem is not their final goal, right? Uh, the reason we use simulators in RL study is because we use them as benchmarks or as a way to emulate what would happen if we were to apply RL in the real world. Um, so uh, in that case, uh, I would say, yes, a lot of the difficulties that you mentioned earlier, for example, that uh, you have sample complexity issues, uh, there are consequences and risks of taking real decisions. Uh, it is difficult to run a policy in the real world. And there are actually many more of these kind of uh, um, you know, uh, difficulties associated with real-world RL. And many of these aspects can, can uh, just, it is very hard to study them in the simulator setting, or as of now, uh, we pay uh, much less attention to them um, uh, in our uh, simulator-centered uh, RL uh, research, right? So um, uh, just to add a few other examples, right? So, uh, if you actually learn from real-world data uh, in uh, cases in the scenarios like healthcare, uh, more likely than not, you will be given some passive data that arises 
from, you know, for example, previous uh, historical medical record. And in that case, you know, thinking of confoundedness and introducing something uh, like causal inference could be uh, crucial, which we're not doing a lot at all uh, in the simulator-based RL research. So, so what is missing that keeps us from seeing more RL in the real world? Um, and I guess based on your answer, improvements in simulations won't be enough? Yeah, uh, I mean, as I mentioned, you know, uh, we can always use a simulator to, as a uh, benchmark or as an emulator of what happens in the real world. Uh, I think what uh, part of what we really need is to take this view seriously, right? Um, use the emulator in a way that really tries to mimic what happens in the real world. Uh, and, and sometimes it's surprisingly hard to do this. And I, I'll t- give you one example of this, right? For example, um, you know, I, I've been working on off-policy evaluation for, for quite a while. And uh, as we always do, we will uh, use um, simulators as uh, benchmarks to test and evaluate and compare different OPE algorithms. And in this case, you know, uh, when you show off the performance of your algorithm on the simulator, it's very, very tempting to do hyperparameter tuning, just as what everyone else does in DeepRL. But on the other hand, if you think about when you actually apply OPE in a real-world task, you realize that you just can't do hyperparameter tuning at all, because what you usually tune against is the ground truth value of a policy, uh, which is precisely what you're trying to estimate here and you don't have access to, right? Um, it's pretty funny that there's one time where we submit a, uh, a submit a paper and, about empirical uh, benchmarks and one of the reviewers says that you're just not doing enough hyperparameter tuning. Uh, I think that's kind of like a reflection of um, how uh, people's mindset of, you know, uh, we just need to you know, tune hyperparameters to make this thing work in the simulator. Uh, whereas if you seriously use simulator as a, 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 to emulate the real world situation, you should put a lot more restrictions uh, on yourself when it comes to, you know, um, measure the performance of your algorithm, uh, among other things. So let's move to the third topic now, uh, that is evaluation of RL algorithms and, and overfitting, which, which you started to, to touch on with the off-policy evaluation. Um, first, can, can you just remind us, what is the relationship between the topics of evaluation and overfitting? Yeah, so uh, I guess when we uh, said this, I, I'm really talking about this in, in, the, in the context of, you know, um, many people have been criticizing, uh, especially empirical RL research as something like RL is the only machine learning paradigm where you test on training data. Um, so I think, again, like there, there's some confusion and uh, uh, confusion of uh, different ideas and concepts here. Uh, uh, but but uh, all the way, uh, I think eventually the, the question is when you have an RL algorithms that are trained on some data or trained on some environments, how do you want to... Uh, uh, how can you evaluate this algorithm, right? So uh, what kind of evaluation protocol do you use so that if the evaluation outcome is, uh, uh, is that this algorithm is very good, you're actually confident that this algorithm is uh, you know, generalizing properly for whatever generalization means and that it's not overfitting to the data or the environment that you train it on. 
You suggested on Twitter that we might look to meta learning and transfer learning for a generalization in RL. Is that right? Uh, yes and no, right? So, uh, again, it really depends on what type of generalization are you talking about, right? Uh, so, I think when people criticize RL for like test on training data, uh, what they really mean is that in RL, you train on relatively simple, simplified or uh, simple environments and you test on the same environments. So, that's kind of like uh, test on your, uh, your training data. And, w- and sometimes what people really look for uh, is actually kind of a transfer learning behavior, right? So for example, you learn to, I don't know, like pick up a hammer in this particular environment. And uh, let's say uh, what people really want is that you actually learned how to pick up a hammer, that you will be able to do the same thing even if you're put in a different environment, right? So what you what they don't want the agent to do is that, for example, sometimes maybe the agent overfits to a particular environment that it uses some environment-specific visual cues to help him or her to pick up a hammer, uh, and such cues may be absent in a different environment. So what people really, really want is that, oh, can I just have the agent to really just learn to pick up a hammer, right? Um, uh, but my reaction to that is, you know, in the standard uh, mathematical framework of RL, what we really have is that, you know, there's a single environment, you give data to the learner that are generated from this environment, and the learner will succeed in this environment, period, right? In, in the standard framework, the, nothing is said about how the learner can transfer some of the ability learned from one environment to another. Unless you, you know, present the learner with a whole distribution of diverse environments, where typically you can think of it as a big environment with a diverse set of uh, uh, random initial starting states, right? So uh, that's why I said, like, if you really look for these kind of uh, transfer learning effects, um, then invoke a more appropriate mathematical framework to study that. Uh, instead of blaming the lack of transferability of RL algorithms that are designed for a single environment. So to what extent can we blame on like overfitting and poor generalization on the function approximator versus the reinforcement learning side? Like, uh, like to, I guess with TPRL, I, it seems to me that we, we can make a lot of progress just by waiting for supervised learning to get better. There's more, it seems like there's, pro- there's more to that here. Is that right? Yeah, I think I think if I understand your question correctly, I, I think uh, part of the uh, question is, you know, uh, if we use uh, something like deep neural nets, which are very powerful function approximators, we run into the risk of, you know, um, you know, fitting like too many things or fitting too precisely to the environment, right? So um, uh, actually, I don't really know. Uh, I, I don't really have a great answer to this question. Uh, although I suspect that, for example, maybe if you use a simpler function approximator, it may help with uh, this particular kind of generalization, right? So, uh, for example, in 2015, uh, you know, uh, uh, there, there's this paper, uh, state-of-the-art control of hurry games using shallow reinforcement learning by Leon Machado, Tavidi, and uh, Bowling. So, uh, what they show is that at least as of 2015, uh, the state-of-the-art Atari uh, results can be totally achieved with, say, linear function approximation. Uh, so maybe if, if that gives you the same kind of per- performance on the environment that you train on, uh, maybe it will generalize better to 
you know, uh, slightly different environments. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, as I mentioned before, really, really like I, I think function parameter cannot be the, you know, cannot be the sole answer to this question, right? Because uh, if you really look for those kind of transfer learning uh, behavior, uh, basically there must be a way where you communicate to the learner what you're really looking to, you know, uh, what, what you're really hoping uh, that she learns, right? Uh, why, why does she, why is she supposed to know that picking up the hammer is so important on its own uh, without relying on visual cues, right? So if you just run like a, a very standard algorithm in this, you know, information theoretically, you're just not letting the learner know what you really care about, right? So if you care about that behavior, there must be, be a way to inject that kind of knowledge, that kind of goal into your learning algorithm or your data or anywhere in the execution of the algorithm. Uh, so I think that's where we, we probably need to think more about. I'm reminded of uh, OpenAI did that work with the, the shadow hand and the Rubik's cube, the dexterity paper. And, um, and my understanding is that they used uh, domain randomization and simulation to, to adjust the parameters uh, so that the, the agent didn't overfit to the specific uh, parameters of certain things like the gravity constant and friction constants in the simulation. But what that meant is that they had to train the agent on so many different uh, environments, which I think maybe is only feasible if you have a small number of parameters to to diversify your exploration with. Um, and I can't help but think that that, that that approach doesn't seem very scalable. So I wonder if there's some way to get that effect without actually having to sample uh, from so many different environments. <laughs> so many different environments, right. Because the, the, the space of things that you could, you, the, they're basically saying we don't care too much about these parameters, but then the number of things we don't care about is so large. I don't expect that we could ever enumerate them with, with simulation. Yeah, so, I mean, I don't know. Uh, you know, uh, I think domain randomization is definitely like one of these ideas out there that helps you like overcome, uh, overfitting to a specific environment. Uh, some the other thing that people do, like for example, is uh, you know inject some adversarial or even just random noise to the state dynamics, um, so that uh, you know you don't. Then that's another way to just avoid overfitting to the precise dynamics of the uh, environment that you train on. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. Like uh, there, uh, as you said, like uh, some of these approaches are computationally difficult or uh, very challenging. Like domain randomization, you typically need to sample like lots and lots of environments. And uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't really have a good answer here, but yes, uh, I think we need a, probably need a better ways, more computationally and uh, sample efficient ways to, to overcome this issue. So you mentioned um, some of your work in off-policy evaluation. You've authored some very influential papers on, in off-policy evaluation, including doubly robust off-policy value value value. Value evaluation for reinforcement learning. Yeah, <laughs> I want to uh, say that part again. That, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> um, I mean, the side story here. I, I think the the distinction we wanted to draw there is the notion of uh, off policy learn a entire value function versus just the learning the scalar expected return of a policy. We mean the 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 latter, but there there has always been a confusion between the two. Uh, I, I think that the, the 
the terminology has evolved since then. And uh, my co-author, Li Hong Li, probably has settled on this notion of our policy estimation. But, you know, even to now, like people use different names for that concept. So <laughs> retrospectively, this, this value evaluation um, phrase has been a bad idea and it hasn't, <laughs> it hasn't really prevailed. And, and then you have a minimax confidence interval for off-policy evaluation and policy optimization. Um, you also co-authored a 2019 paper comparing OPE methods, empirical study of off-policy policy evaluation for reinforcement learning uh, by Voloshin et al. So um, g- given that you have ex- you know so much uh, knowledge of this area, can, can you um, maybe share some advice for practitioners on approaches to off-policy evaluation? How, sh- how should we look at that in, uh, in settings where we don't have uh, a simulator? Yeah, I think that's a you know that's a good question. So um, so uh, I, I think that there you know first of all I, I'm not a really a, a practitioner, and uh, um, so the first thing I would say at a high level is that you really need to talk to the domain experts and uh, really understand the unique uh, properties and challenges uh, of your particular application, right? So uh, I, I, uh, for example. Uh, think about OPE in healthcare versus some of these like uh, online recommendation systems. The the kind of challenges, the kind of data you deal with, uh, can be drastically different in these two scenarios, right? Uh, for example, in healthcare, as I mentioned, uh, you probably get non-exploratory histor- uh, historical data that are uh, obtained by human decision makers, and you face you know causal inference issues like confoundedness and all of that. Whereas uh, if you're a company like Microsoft, Google, Amazon, and so on, um, you may try to use RL to uh, improve your um, your online services or your online interactions with your customers. And in that case, uh, if you've been uh, used to do these kind of things, uh, for example, Microsoft has this uh, uh, decision service platform uh, that are designed for uh, doing contextual bandit uh, stuff. Uh, then you may have very well logged data where not only you log like state action reward and all of that, but also for each action that you've recorded, you've also recorded the probability that, um, that, that you wanted to sample that action uh, when you actually like generated that data. And that piece of information turns out to be very crucial if you want to apply something like important sampling. Right. Uh, w- uh, whereas uh, those kind of information uh, is typically missing in other scenarios like healthcare, if not even like yield defined. And, um, and and on this topic, really, like uh, I think just the, the past weekend, there's a very nice uh, virtual conference RL for real life uh, where uh, there's a dedicated panel of speakers uh, about RL for healthcare environments. Uh, I haven't been able to check out that uh, those videos myself, and I'll definitely do. And I encourage those who are interested in uh, applying RL and OPE uh, in some of these uh, uh, related uh, application scenarios to check out those uh, videos as well. I did actually spend part of my weekend uh, with with some of those videos, and I can I can say that uh, especially the healthcare ones were were really fascinating and very informative to me. Cool. <laughs> So does that mean that the off-policy evaluation problem can't really be solved by just improving the world models using, say, deep learning or, or some other um, supervised learning methods? 
Does it sound like there there's much more uh, to solving that problem than than building better better world models that to use to be used for off policy evaluation? Yeah, I think that's a good question, right? So uh, one of the uh, approaches that you would immediately think of for off policy evaluation is uh, model based RL, as you mentioned, right? So if I can possibly model the dynamics of the world, uh, then of course I can use that to evaluate anything I want. Um, the problem with that is that you know. Uh, the full dynamics of the world is, you know, it's too powerful, right? Uh, it's overly powerful that you can basically do anything. You'll be able to, you'll be capable of doing anything with it. And which means, typically means that uh, you're making kind of unrealistic assumption. And down to a technical level, what really happens is that, especially if you have a large state space and you think of uh, model learning over a large state space, uh, the problem you, you face is that you're, see, you, you're trying to learn in the transition dynamics, right? Um, state action maps to distribution over next state. So unlike other uh, standard you know, classification and regression scenarios of supervised learning, here you're trying to learn a function that has a ultra-rich label space, right? So the label is not even just the state, which is already high-dimensional, but it's actually a distribution over states. Um, so uh, some of the difficulties that we've touched on earlier, like what aspects of the state is important versus unimportant, will, will come in here, right? So uh, typically when people uh, try to learn these raw world models now, uh, what kind of loss function do they use? Well, first of all, they often assume the world is deterministic, which is approximately true in some of the you know, control benchmarks. But for real-world scenarios, as you mentioned, some of them are highly noisy, so you can't pretend that the world is deterministic. And furthermore, even if it is deterministic, you still have to define an informative loss function for your state, right? Uh, are two states close to each other or not? Uh, but, but if you think about what, uh, what you can do, for example, in the, uh, if you're building a model for Atari games, well, you're given two pixel screens. How can you compare them? If you use something like L1 or L2 loss, that's, not, that's going to be highly uninformative. Uh, you can try something like a perception loss, basically like using a neural net to distem, uh, distinguish between them. But again, that kind of uh, discriminator uh, is going to be, is very generic. It doesn't really speak to your precise need of doing our policy evaluation. It is completely generic just to help you learn a model. And this trade, and, and there must be a trade-off here, right? If you apply a very, very generic approach to learn a very complex object like the full model of the world, then you lose the ability to focus and concentrate your um, sample and computational resources on the part of the world that are really just important for your off-policy evaluation task. Uh, so that's why I think, you know, I may be wrong, but but I think. Uh, model-based approach as a solution to OPE uh, is probably the, not the best way to go. Um, and we, you know, uh, we, uh, I mean, I've worked in OPE for a while, and in recent years, we've also seen a uh, very fast progress in some of the new ideas uh, that uh, can give you reliable OPE estimations with relatively mild uh, representation assumptions, you know, much more weaker, much weaker than assuming that you can capture the world dynamics. Uh, I think I'll bet on that route. 
where we continuously weaken the representation assumptions we need uh, for OPE so that we get more and more reliable um, uh, OPE uh, procedures that, uh, that uses less and less assumptions to the point that you know, people are comfortable uh, applying them in the real-world scenarios. That's very interesting. Can, can you, um, can, would you care to mention any specific works uh, along that line that, that you're pointing to? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, I mean, before I point to any specific method, you know, really when you apply OPE, you should be thinking first, uh, what regime of uh, problem, uh, what regime of OPE you're in, right? So uh, people probably have heard of, uh, you know, in RL, OPE can be very difficult if you have a long horizon. Um, that's partially true, right? So really what you should care about is uh, how long the horizon is and how different your behavior policy and your target policy is. Um, if they are very different from each other and or the horizon is very long, uh, you don't want to use something like important sampling, which is great for uh, otherwise, right? So if your two policies are very close to each other or the horizon is relatively short, uh, important sampling will give you unbiased estimation, the, which does not rely, rely on any of the um, uh, does not rely on any of the function approximation assumptions. And you can also do some nice variance reduction uh, as we did in the W robust uh, OPE paper uh, to, to further improve these kind of method in this regime. Uh, however, uh, in other scenarios, you will find yourself in the much more challenging uh, situation where either the two policies differ significantly from each other and or the horizon is very long. And if you try to apply important sampling in this regime, you'll find that your importance weights, uh, which you need to multiply together uh, over multiple time steps, will quickly have an variance that explodes exponentially with the horizon. Right? So in this case, you will need something else, right? So you need something that's closer to, um, say, um, uh, other value-based RL algorithms that makes uses of Bellman equations to overcome this so-called cursive horizon. And um, um, I, I've, uh, th there's this very nice paper from 20, 2018 Europe's called uh, Breaking the Cursive Horizon, which introduces this idea of marginalized important sampling, where instead of trying to correct the distribution of an entire sequence of actions you've taken, you just try to correct the mismatch between the marginal distributions of states that you've seen uh, to the marginal state distribution that should be induced by the target policy. Um, so that's where uh, I've, uh, th that's a topic that I've uh, worked on uh, extensively recently. And I think it's a very promising idea uh, in the regime where, you know, uh, important sampling really doesn't work. Thank you for clarifying those regimes. And that was actually, uh, I think, a really key insight that I was missing uh, because I couldn't see how important sampling could solve problems from the other regime, but I didn't have, uh, I couldn't put my finger on it describing the reason. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. Uh, if, if you allow me, I, I'll just add another fun fact, right? So some people think important sampling is good. It, it gives you unbiased estimation, whereas others think important sampling is just so bad, it will just gives you exponential variance everywhere. Uh, that's also not true. So if you, have you ever applied or uh, implemented uh, policy gradient methods? 
I, I actually have, and I'm focused on value-based uh, methods. Oh, okay. But, uh, you know, like many people have, uh, you know, implemented policy gradient. And, you know, like if you have ever used the policy gradient, you've essentially used important sampling, right? So um, there's this very nice connection that um, policy gradient is essentially using important sampling to estimate the return of your policy around the small neighborhood of your current policy, and then just differentiate that, right? So, and you don't see exponential variance in policy gradient precisely because in this case, your behavior policy and target policy are infinitesimally close to each other. Um, so, you know, which means that you can expand this a little bit if your behavior and target policy are slightly different from each other, important sampling will still work very well, right? Uh, and, you know, th this particular connection between OPE and PG has been mentioned by Jiatang and Peter Abiel in a 2010 paper. And we recently in this ISML, we've uh, extended to further establish uh, many more connections between the entire family of, you know, variance reduction for important sampling and variance reduction for PG. It turns out they can use this simple connection to connect so many methods in these two families together. Um, so, you know, I, I think that that's an, another piece of evidence or a piece of facts you should keep in mind when you think about when and wh uh, when important sampling works versus it doesn't, it doesn't. Do you have opinions on how causal models should apply to RL? And are they uh, a promising direction for OPE under distributional shift? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So uh, especially in the context of, of OPE, uh, you know, causal inference will definitely play a big role here. But um, the way that I think about it, uh, I think that the way you ask the question is, can we use ideas from causal inference to uh, improve the current OPE methods, maybe in the current setup? Uh, but the way I think about it is that, uh, you know, when you actually apply OPE in the real world, uh, especially where this, there is confoundedness, right? So uh, this is where you really need uh, causal inference methods because all our standard OPE methods in the reinforcement learning literature, the majority of them are assuming uh, unconfounded data, right? So uh, many RL uh, audience may not be familiar or uh, know precisely what confoundedness means. Really, it means that uh, the historical data you've collected are the decisions, the actions taken are, uh, in, those, in those data are not taken by you. And those actions may have depended on information that are not accessible to you. For example, if you're in a healthcare environment uh, scenario, uh, you may have data uh, that are generated by past uh, decisions made by human doctors. And now you try to use it to improve your automated uh, healthcare decision-making system, which, for example, featurize the patients using some certain features. But back in that data set, when the human doctor makes a decision, he or she may have depended their decisions uh, based on, for example, the facial expression of the patient and many more subtle information that is just not recorded in your current data set, right? So that's where, you know, confoundedness comes into play and you really need uh, causality, the, 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 the uh, tools from causal inference to combat that. So the way that I think about it is that really, you know, it's, it's the issue of confoundedness that makes the problem more complex and even more challenging than it, is, it already is 
um, in terms of uh, OPE, and we will need a causal uh, inference to 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 solve to to uh, deal with those issues. Can you tell us a bit about your research directions going forward? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, so in general, uh, you know, so the, the the typical way I find research problems is that you know th- there are several of these uh, big ish. Uh, 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 problems that just stay in my mind like all the time. Um, for example, several of them I've mentioned uh, earlier, like what is the fundamental representation limit of various modes of uh, reinforcement learning? And, you know, in every, uh, in some of the papers, I try to address uh, bits of these big open problems like little by little. And on the other hand, um, you know, uh, every time you've, uh, Every time you've done a paper, uh, usually you you just cannot open all. You cannot solve all the problems, right? You always leave some problems open, or there's some loose ends that you've overlooked before. And after you've done a paper, you usually just sit down and reflect on what you have done and what are the questions that have always been like just lingering in your mind when you just write a paper. And then you realize maybe there's some like brand new like questions out there that needs to be addressed. And that naturally leads to the next research topic. And outside of your own work, um, are there things happening in RL these days that you're particularly interested in? Yeah, I mean, so um, so back in the days, you know, uh, RL theory used to be a very small uh, field. Uh, but in recent years, you know, uh, we've all seen a, a very rapid growth of interest and attention in this field. And there are tons of papers on archive uh, almost every day, if not every, uh, almost every week, if not every day, uh, on various directions in RL theory. And just as everyone else, I, I can uh, barely like keep up with all these latest results. And, and of course, like from, th- from time to time, there are some papers that are just very, very interesting that just immediately like caught my attention. Uh, uh, for example, I've mentioned that I've uh, worked on uh, recently worked on OPE with uh, marginalized important sampling, and that's really in- inspired by this uh, 2018 work, uh, which uh, I was definitely surprised when I saw it for the first time. Uh, and uh, other than RL theory, uh, you know, I also keep an eye on uh, what's happening in uh, empirical uh, RL research, like uh, the deep RL works. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, uh, the, the empirical RL works uh, uh, is sort of like uh, the the optimistic estimation of what is plausible, uh, what can we possibly achieve, what is the skyline of uh, RL in various situations. So you know, uh, you know, when you when you do theory, you always need to make a certain assumptions, and uh, I would actually say that you know, in in some situations, theoreticians have a very poor idea of what assumptions are realistic and what are not, because whether they are realistic. Assumptions really depend on uh, whether they can be satisfied in a practical scenarios, and uh, to get a brief I- to even get a rough idea of what assumptions are plausible versus what are not, you really, really need to you know pay some attention to what's happening in the uh, empirical community and see what kind of methods have been successful and what have been not. Professor Nanjiang, uh, I learned so much from speaking with you today, and I know our audience is grateful. Um, I look forward to following your research going forward, and thank you so much for sharing your time with all of us today, Professor Nanjiang. 
Thanks for again for having me here, and it was a great pleasure like talking to you. That's our episode for today, folks. Be sure to check talkrl.com for more great episodes. 